I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we're talking about electroconvulsive therapy. My guests include Dr. Sarah Lizenby and Professor John Reed, who are each going to offer you two very different perspectives on this topic. Given that we're talking about treatment options today, though, I want to remind you that Modern Minds does not offer medical advice. To find out what treatments may or may not work for you in your individual circumstance, please talk with your healthcare provider. But I do hope that this episode both challenges and enlightens you wherever you stand on this issue. So let's get into it. This is Modern Minds. Welcome to Modern Minds, I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. You're going to hear both sides of this. Both guests that I have on today are well-established academics and experts, and both have very different positions on this treatment. Later on, I'm going to be talking with Professor John Reed. Reed is a professor of clinical psychology in the University of East London School of Psychology. Back in 2010, he co-authored a literature review on the effectiveness of electroconvulsive therapy. Now, in that review, he concluded that the cost-benefit analysis for ECT is so poor that its use can't be scientifically justified. Now, some psychiatrists have criticized his study, accusing it of pushing an anti-ECT agenda. Many have since put forth a substantial amount of evidence that shows clear clinical benefits for the practice. Meanwhile, there's people with lived experience on both sides of the fence. Some say that they have sustained significant brain injury from ECT, but others say that it saved their life. So what's the truth? I don't know, but I hope that hearing these perspectives helps you to form your own opinion either way and that you share those opinions with me in the comments on YouTube and at Mark Hennick pretty much everywhere else on Facebook, Threads, Instagram, X, and LinkedIn. So let's get to our first guest. Dr. Sarah Lizenby is one of the world's leading researchers in the area of neuromodulatory interventions for treating major depression. She is the J.P. Gibbons Professor Emeritus at Duke University, and she's a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Lizenby is also a prolific author with over 280 scientific publications. Among those publications, she's served as a principal investigator on studies involving electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, vagus nerve stimulation, deep brain stimulation, and other devices. Dr. Lizenby joins me now from Maryland. Dr. Lizenby, welcome to Modern Minds. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So I wanted to get you on to talk about uh, electroconvulsive therapy because you're a world-leading expert in this field, of course, but it's also a, a, a pretty controversial area uh, of mental health care. There's a lot of stigma and misinformation around uh, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, but there's a lot of good science around it, too. So I'm trying to reconcile, you know, both sides of this. We have uh, many people in the consumer survivor uh, community uh, and even some other academics who are critical, uh, but I don't want that to distract us from some of the evidence and some of the scientific work uh, that has been done for many years on this. So why don't we just to, to jump in here, give us a bit of a, a, in simple terms, explain how ECT works uh, in terms of how it's administered uh, and what some of the outcomes are that you've observed. 
Absolutely, I'd be delighted to. So electroconvulsive therapy or ECT in the modern era is a medical procedure that's performed under anesthesia. So the person is asleep for the procedure. And while they're asleep, the electrodes are placed on the head and a specific amount of electricity is applied to the head and that induces a seizure. The seizure lasts typically less than a minute. Uh, and after a couple of minutes, the person wakes up uh, and then recovers from the procedure. Uh, the treatments are given typically two or three times a week for a series of weeks. And the important thing about ECT is that it is among our most effective and rapidly acting treatments for severe depression. And it very rapidly resolves suicidal ideation. We know that when people are severely depressed, they can be at significant risk of suicide. And having very effective and rapidly acting treatments like ECT can be the difference between life and death. You know, I think there's obviously, as I mentioned at the top, there are a lot of stigma around this. And it's because I think I don't think you can open a single uh, introductory psychology textbook without hearing about one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh, and that sort of uh, dramatized, sensationalized version of ECT. So can you talk a little bit about the, the historical portrayals of this procedure uh, and maybe how that has contributed to the stigma? So many of the portrayals that you see about ECT in the media or the movies uh, or on social media are not medically accurate. They may be sensationalized. The medically accurate um, situation uh, actually is fairly anticlimactic. When we train medical students or residents to perform the procedure and they see it for the first time, often they're surprised, oh, is that it? You know, the body doesn't move unlike you see in the movies because the anesthesia and muscle relaxation protects the body. So the body is actually still during the treatment and we monitor the seizure using electrodes that are on the head, which is electroencephalography. And so it's really important to understand there's a very big difference between the medical reality of modern ECT and these media portrayals. So okay, you talked a bit about how it's monitored and how ECT is administered, but what's the actual, if we even know, what's the actual mechanism of action that's happening? Why does the seizure seem to alleviate depression? Yeah, you're asking a really exciting question. When we think about how powerfully effective and rapidly acting ECT is, uh, it really begs the question, well, how is it working? Because if we could understand the mechanisms of action of this very effective treatment, that might unlock uh, future interventions that might be even safer uh, and more effective than ECT. What we do when we do ECT uh, is two things. We administer electricity, and then that induces a seizure. And it's actually still an unanswered question, whether it's the electricity or the seizure or both, that leads to the therapeutic benefit. And unpacking the mechanisms of action of ECT, we believe at a scientific level, is gonna be really important in developing safer interventions. We know that not only is ECT very effective for treating depression, but it also carries a risk of side effects like memory loss. And so understanding how we can focus the treatment uh, on areas of the brain that are important for antidepressant efficacy and minimize the impact on areas of the brain and brain circuits that are driving the side effects like memory loss, this could really lead to next generation interventions that are um, as effective and safer. And actually that's the focus of some of the research in, in my lab. 
There have been uh, some vocal uh, uh, dissenters, again, DCT, I guess is the best way to put it. Often people with lived experience who uh, feel that they were injured uh, by ECT, that they sustained brain injury. Uh, is this a real risk for this procedure? So there, there, with any medical procedure, there's a risk of side effects. And uh, one of the most concerning risks of side effects with ECT is memory loss. And memory loss can uh, be really, you know, devastating if, if it's extensive. What we've learned over the years is that the amount of memory loss with ECT depends on how the treatment is given. In the early days of ECT, I'm talking the 1930s and 40s, the treatment was one size fits all. Everyone received electrodes on both sides of the head. That's called bilateral ECT and a form of electricity called sine wave, which is the alternating current, which is the type of electricity that's powering my laptop right now, uh, was used. And what we've learned is that those aspects of the treatment were associated with excessive memory loss. Today, with modern ECT, we've learned that we can modify where we place the electrodes on the head. So if you put both electrodes on the same side of the head, that's called unilateral ECT specifically on the right hemisphere, so that's right unilateral ECT. And if instead of sine waves, you use brief square pulses, uh, instead of those sinusoidal waves, that this briefer amount of electricity is safer. So combining right unilateral with ultra-brief pulse, we found in randomized controlled trials, is a way of significantly reducing that risk of memory loss. Now, I will mm. tell you, the risk is not zero. There is absolutely still a risk. Now, uh, which is driving research to try to refine the treatments using magnetic stimulation, for example, which is magnetic seizure therapy. Now you've used the term brain damage, and I think it's really important to understand uh, the evidence. Uh, so brain imaging studies in people who've received ECT using magnetic resonance imaging, as well as neuropathology studies analyzing the brain uh, under a microscope after people have died of other causes, have found no evidence of brain damage. And when you say brain damage, typically we're looking for signs of lesions, signs of, um, of atrophy or, or cell death. Uh, also in non-human animal studies, uh, examining the brains after subjects undergo large amounts of ECT uh, show no evidence of brain damage. Now, it, it may be difficult to reconcile these two things, that on one hand, you can have memory loss, but on the other hand, this can occur without brain damage. And uh, that suggests that there is an opportunity for recovery. And in fact, we do see some of these memories do return. Uh, as you wait longer after the treatment ends, some of the memories do begin to come back, but not 100%. And that's what really drives our research because we're seeking to develop more effective and safer ways so that people don't have to choose between their memories and their mood. Hmm. I, I'm always suspicious whenever any mo new modality comes. I mean, this isn't a new modality, of course, but whenever any modality comes out within mental health treatment and it's treated as, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's treated as a sort of panacea uh, for for any number of mental health conditions and even depression itself. That's a that's a big bucket uh, of different symptomologies and manifestations. So who would you say are the best candidates for ECT uh, and maybe who is it contraindicated for? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So ECT is most effective for severe depression. And we typically refer people for ECT 
after they have received the um, less invasive interventions like psychotherapy, medications, after they've had maybe several courses of different classes of antidepressant medications, and when those interventions fail to be effective, uh, that's when we think about referring for brain stimulation technologies. Electroconvulsive therapy is, is one. Also, now we have transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which is also approved by the Food and Drug Administration for treatment-resistant depression. Studies suggest that uh, an excellent candidate for ECT would be someone who has a serious treatment-resistant depression who is in need of a rapid antidepressant response. And that might be because they are not able to function in their daily lives. They may not be able to continue working. They may not be able to care for their family or involve uh, engage in their social activities. And they may be having thoughts of uh, uh, not wanting to go on living or even thoughts of taking their own life. Um, there's also a very serious form of ECT called psych a, a form of depression called psychotic depression. When you have psychotic depression, in addition to having severe depression, you may be having experiences like hearing a voice talking to you uh, or believing things that are not true. And psychotic depression can be life-threatening. It's a very serious condition and it responds extremely well to ECT. There's another form of a life-threatening condition called catatonia. When you have catatonia, you can't move, you can't speak. This is, uh, it, it's an emergency, it's a psychiatric emergency. And importantly, ECT is very rapidly effective in cases of catatonia. Now, I want to explore this idea of of uh, treatment attempts. You know, ECT has often been uh, cast as a as a last resort treatment in some ways, although that's, you know, I, I've also read that that isn't necessarily always the case. Um, but I'm interested in defining what treatment resistance actually is. You know, I think you and probably the rest of the psychiatry community has seen uh, the Moncrief et al. Uh, umbrella review around antidepressants and their efficacy. Um, it's been a, it seems to have been a, a lively discussion uh, within the field. Uh, and they seem to suggest that antidepressant medication as a sole treatment option, at least, uh, the efficacy is not that great. So are we defining treatment uh, attempts as only, you know, X number of medications, uh, which may or may not work anyway, and then we move on to ECT? Or are we looking at, uh, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of what is that, what defines treatment resistance? Is it only within that that medical model? Well, we think, even in the medical model, we think of the biopsychosocial model. We know that there are biological contributors, there are psychological contributors, and there are social contributors. And so we want to think holistically about what this individual is experiencing and what's leading to their experience of, of depression. Uh, and in terms of the depression itself or how we define treatment resistance, there's a number of criteria that are in the published literature, but, but typically it's after the person has tried psychosocial interventions like psychotherapy, as well as multiple classes of antidepressant medications. And, um, you know, the typical patient that's referred to me or my group for ECT, uh, it's not uncommon for someone to have tried 10, 20, even more uh, medications. And sometimes the depression has lasted for months to years, um, even decades in, in some cases. And so when you think about the degree of suffering and over extended periods of time that people experience, um, it, it sometimes raises the question, why don't we consider using ECT earlier? And in fact, it is medically indicated 
earlier in the course, if the person is not responding to uh, a couple of medication switches and, and other interventions. And it's very common in patients that I've treated uh, for, for me to hear after they've had ECT uh, and recovered, they often ask me, why did I have to wait so long to get this? Why wasn't I referred earlier? I'm curious about your views on uh, uh, different subtypes of depression. You know, I've seen a little bit of research on the fact that, you know, maybe medical interventions might work better for particular subtypes of depression, theoretically, versus uh, trauma or or psychosocial factors. If somebody's homeless or uh, underemployed and they're depressed because of that, is ECT or, or some other, you know, neuromodulatory um, intervention, is that going to help them if they're depressed because they're homeless and, and underemployed? You know, so I want to try to get at if if you think ECT seems to respond better uh, within a, a, a subtype depression sort of model. Yeah, so you're raising a very important point that there is uh, heterogeneity within depression. So people, if you take you know ten people who are given the label of depression, they might not share any symptoms in common uh, because the diagnosis is made on the basis of uh, self-reported uh, subjective symptoms. Uh, and it's a checklist of symptoms, and you can meet those criteria in many different ways. And also, there are different uh, psychosocial uh, factors that influence the person's life experience uh, that are relevant as well. In addition to the heterogeneity within de depression, we have comorbidity, meaning a person may be meeting criteria for more than one diagnosis. It might not just be depression, but it might be also an anxiety disorder, or maybe they've been exposed to trauma and may have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, or perhaps are um, uh, using substances uh, and have a substance use disorder. So in, in the real world, these things can very commonly co-occur. So I think it's, that's part of the assessment, the part of the psychiatric evaluation to uh, meet each person where they are and um, to identify what uh, are the drivers of that person's experience with depression. Uh, and in terms of those that respond well to ECT, very commonly, those are individuals who uh, may have a family history of ECT, oh, I'm sorry, a family history of depression, uh, because we know that it is uh, familial and it does have biological components to it. We also know that there are um, periods in a person's life that um, uh, have an increased risk of depression, for example, for women uh, around the reproductive life cycle, particularly uh, peripartum. This is an area, uh, a period of time when ECT can be effective and also when depression can be very uh, severely impairing, not only for the, for the mother, but also for her ability to care for her child. Um, and so uh, the assessment uh, is, a, is a nuanced one. And we consider mm. the risks and benefits of ECT versus the risks and benefits of alternative treatments like other medications or other device-based therapies like TMS. Well, before I let you go, I want to just finish off by asking you about some of those uh, other uh, neuromodulatory uh, interventions like transcranial magnetic stimulation. I understand you've done some work in there. How are they similar? How do they differ from ECT? So the um, similarity between TMS and ECT uh, is that they both induce electricity in the brain. Uh, and they're both FDA cleared for treatment-resistant depression. But there are big differences in how the treatments are administered. I already told you that in the case of ECT, the person is under anesthesia and a seizure is induced. But in the case of TMS, you're awake for the procedure, a magnetic coil is held on your head, and it induces a very tiny electrical current, orders of magnitude weaker than what we use with ECT. 
uh, and that electrical current induced by the TMS is repeated uh, over a period of, of minutes, and then that's repeated over a period of sessions. And um, this uh, has been found to be effective even when medications uh, are not. Now, um, uh, often people ask, well, what are the relative benefits of TMS versus ECT? So with the conventional forms of TMS, it would typically take four to six weeks for a person to achieve benefit. Whereas with ECT, even after the first treatment, you already are starting to see benefit. But there's a new form of TMS that's just become cleared by the FDA, which is the SAINT protocol. And in that protocol, multiple sessions are given uh, per day over a period of five days. And this protocol is showing very rapid onset of antidepressant action. Now, we don't know yet if this accelerated form of TMS is as effective as ECT, but we do know that TMS, at least as it's given in these FDA period protocols, does not have the risk of memory loss that's seen with ECT. I will also point out that the more serious forms of depression, like psychotic depression, catatonia, acutely suicidal uh, depression, these are situations where ECT is, uh, as currently given, still more effective based on current literature than TMS. So those would be indicators to think about ECT. Well, it sounds like there's lots of uh, uh, ongoing and interesting research happening on this, and you're on the front lines of that. So thank you so much uh, for speaking with us on Modern Minds today, Dr. Lizenby. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Professor John Reed. Mental health is health. At the Institute of Living, we are pioneers in mental health, and we have been for 200 years. We have an ambition to transform mental health services while co-designing these services with those whom we serve. Together, we can reduce stigma, address discrimination, and increase access to care. Welcome back to Modern Minds. I'm Mark Hennick. Professor John Reed worked for nearly 20 years as a clinical psychologist and manager of mental health services in both the UK and the US before moving into academia back in 1994. He's now professor of clinical psychology at the University of East London, and he has since published over 150 papers in research journals primarily on the relationship between adverse life events and psychosis. But he also researches the negative effects of biogenetic causal explanations on prejudice. He researches electroconvulsive therapy and the role of the pharmaceutical industry in mental health research and practice. In 2022, Dr. Reed was listed in Stanford University's register of the top 2% most cited researchers in the world. Here's my conversation with Professor John Reed on Modern Minds. Professor John Reed, thank you so much for joining me on Modern Minds today. Glad to be here. 
So we're talking about electroconvulsive therapy, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, neuromodulation, and all the ways that we can, uh, at least in theory, change the brain to help people with mental health problems and illnesses. At least that's the idea. Um, and you have a, a wealth of experience, of course, uh, talking about teaching uh, and thinking about ECT in particular. And, and we'll get to the other methods in a minute. But I want to talk about ECT specifically. Um, you're working in the UK, but you've also worked in the in the states and and elsewhere around the world. What would you say is the current state or the current understanding of electroconvulsive therapy? You know, uh, what circumstances is it given in? Who is it given to? That sort of basic profile of ECT today. Well, the theory is that it's only given to people who are extremely depressed at the at the uh, one end of the uh, severe spectrum of depression and or um, suicidal. That's the claim made by people who use ECT. That's not actually the case. It's, it's used um, across the spectrum of the depression, um, not just people who are extremely depressed and at risk of suicide. Um, and the, <clears throat> the best predictors of who gets it are not to do with diagnosis or mental health status, they are, they are to do with whether you're female and over 60. Uh, women are likely to get it twice as often as men, and the modal ECT patient around the world is aged between 60 and 64. Um, so those are the uh, two of the predictors who gets it. And the other major predictor, of course, because it's a bit of a geographical lottery, is, um, is where you live, because there's huge variation, certainly in Britain, but I understand also in the States, um, about the frequency, uh, of the frequency of uh, how often ECT is is given. So here in England, our research tells us that um, in one of our uh, regions, you, you're about forty times more likely um, to get ECT than in the region that uses it the, the least. So those are the main main areas. But the theory is it's used for extremely suicidal people because another part of the theory is that it saves lives and prevent suicide, although there's no evidence for that. We might want to come on to that. That's interesting because it seems like, and, and there's probably maybe survey data to support this, I don't know, but it, my perception is that it seems like within psychiatry and mental health care, uh, ECT is often talked about as, yes, maybe a last resort kind of treatment for severe and persistent depression, especially, but other I've seen it with other conditions as well. Um, but it's often kind of billed as overly stigmatized, that it's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest anymore, um, that it's safe and, and highly effective. Are you saying that that's not the case? I am saying that's not the case. Um, so if we take effectiveness first, um, there hasn't been a single placebo-controlled study of ECT since 1985. Um, and before then, there were only ever 11. And they were all small, extremely flawed, um, and nowhere near the standards of today's evidence-based medicine. Um, so there actually isn't any evidence that it's better than, than placebo. Of, of those 11, small and flawed as they were, Five found no difference between ECT and placebo. Four found a temporary benefit during the course of treatment for a percentage of the patients, but no benefit beyond the end of treatment. And the other two found mixed results depending on who was doing the assessment. So in those two studies, the psychiatrists um, saw an improvement, but the nurses and the patients didn't. So there really isn't a, an evidence base to say that ECT is any better than. And placebo um, mm. and the ECT proponents say when you ask them why haven't you done any studies for the last 40 years 
um, but they say it would be unethical to do so, um, which is an interesting position to take because it positions them, them completely outside of the realms of normal science. You mm -hmm. can't say it's unethical to withhold a treatment to find out whether it works because I believe it works. Um, that's, that's the whole point of randomized controlled trials. Um, but that is the position that most ECT proponents take when you ask them why have, why have there been no placebo-controlled trials. Mm. Now, do you think that, that of some of the research that has been done already, um, is it a matter of the, the sample group being too diverse or diluted and that it's not being prescribed in the right specific circumstances, therefore it's taking the efficacy down? Or is it just across the board that it doesn't, that it doesn't work? Well, from, as far as we, well, we, the point is we don't really, we, I'm not saying it, it doesn't work. I'm saying we don't have the evidence that it does work. So across the board, there is no evidence um, up to the standard of ordinary evidence-based medicine standards of, of today, there is no evidence that ECT is better than placebo for, for any group of people. Um, and um, where there is sort of weak evidence in some studies, it's only for the duration of the treatment. So there's no studies showing that it has any long-term benefits beyond the end of treatment whatsoever. And also mm. no evidence that it's, um, saves lives, which is the primary uh, reason that it's 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 believed to be reasonable to take the risks involved and the very serious risks with ECT. Um, the justification is it, it saves lives, um, but there isn't any evidence for that either. Mm. Now, are there any um, conditions of which you're aware uh, that ECT might be explicitly contraindicated or, or in fact, harmful potentially? Yes, people with heart conditions and other uh, serious health problems. The leading cause of death from ECT is cardiovascular failure. Um, so anybody with a heart condition um, shouldn't have it. And if we went on the basis of, of um, the data we do have, um, there, there are two groups who are more likely to end up with brain damage and memory loss, and those are older people and women, um, who are the two groups most likely to receive ECT. Um, but in terms of mental health diagnosis, no, it doesn't make any any difference. There's no group um, particularly more or less likely to benefit by in terms of psychiatric diagnosis, um, mm -hmm. or particularly more or less likely to end up with brain damage. Now, there's been a long history uh, and an active discussion, I think, uh, about how ECT, among other treatments, has been in the past, uh, maybe currently, I don't know, but administered to people against their will, uh, people who might not be competent. Is this a, an issue that um, you've looked into in the past? And is that still happening, do you think? Uh, yes, it's still happening. Yes, it's a major issue. In Britain, um, uh our own research, our audits of the ECT clinics in Britain show that 40% of people are still giving it against their will. Um, and apart from the whole issue of compulsion, making it pretty impossible to establish any sort of therapeutic relationship with the people trying to help you, um, it's, a, a, it's a straightforward human rights issue. Uh, in no other area of medicine or no other area of anything um, can you legally and ethically uh, give something to somebody against their will, which we know has a reasonable chance of causing memory loss or brain damage. You can't even give cancer treatments to people against their will, even though it will probably save their lives. Um, people have the right to say no. 
But this particular group of people seem to have um, fewer human rights than the rest of us. Now, you've done a lot of your work in the UK, as I mentioned at the top, but you've also worked in the States and and elsewhere. Do you think that the issues around ECT, both in terms of how it's um, positioned within um, the mental health professions and how it's regarded from without, uh, is that the same around the world or are there cultural differences or, or differences in different countries? Uh, there are there are differences. Some, I mean, some of the issues are are the same, obviously, in terms of the, the effect of the electricity on the human brain. That's the same whether you're American, British, or Chinese. But um, one of the big differences um, where you are in the states is the financial aspect, uh, which we don't have here. People in Britain and Europe are not making a lot of money out of giving ECT, whereas in the states, there's a clear financial incentive um, to give ECT, regardless of whether it's wanted. Or not so that's a that's a major difference america the other contextual thing for the united states is that you have the most medicalized mental health system in the world um largely because of the huge impact of the pharmaceutical industry over there so mm. um we're not talking about medications today but the, the general context in the states people don't people don't realize that in Europe and in other places, the starting the starting point of people over here is that our mental health difficulties are caused by things going on in our lives. So mm-hmm. if you're depressed, the assumption is that there's depressing things going on that need addressing, that can't necessarily be fixed by chemicals or electricity, that you need to talk about why the person is lonely or scared or, or whatever it is. Um, whereas over there, you do have a rather, uh, no offense, but you have a quite simplistic reductionist biological explanation for human distress and and therefore simplistic biological attempts uh, to solve the problems. Now, I mean, you mentioned that, of course, we're not talking about medication today, but actually on our last episode, uh, we did talk about the deprescribing movement. Uh, we talked to Dr. Mark Horowitz uh, from from over there as well. So I think there is, though, it raises an interesting connection because there are industry um, interests in, in uh, the medication debate and the medication culture, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. And you mentioned as well, people aren't making a lot of money from administering ECT, at least in the UK. So why does it continue? Uh, If there isn't a lot of evidence, there isn't pharma backing it, there isn't uh, industry backing it, maybe. Why does it continue so much? Well, you'd have to ask the people who use it that. uh, You'd have to ask them that question. I I think it because for a small and dwindling number of psychiatrists, uh, and it is small, in the United States, it's less than 2% of um, your psychiatrists ever use ECT. Um, and it's about the same over here. So it's a tiny proportion of the profession use it. So you have to ask why Why are so many psychiatrists not using it would be an interesting question um, to pose to psychiatrists. Um, but why is it still used? The people who use it clearly are good people. They're well-intentioned people. They believe it works. Um, and when they are faced with people who are suicidal and they don't know what else to do, perhaps because they don't have the skills to d- develop therapeutic relationships with extremely tr- distressed people, which, to be fair, not everybody has that set of skills. Um, and but you feel the need to do something, and and it isn't it isn't difficult to cause an artificial temporary lift in mood. You can do it with cocaine. You can do it with heroin. You can do it with electricity. Um, and, and you do see some sort of result. So, you, and then you, 
you become un- you remain unaware of the fact that that's got no lasting benefit. In fact, if the person comes back three months later saying, I feel just as depressed as I ever did or even more depressed, you give them some more of the same treatment um, because mm-hmm. it, in a way because it didn't work. But it, but it might have given them a temporary buzz, so to speak. Let me explain that. I mean, the way ECT works, um, to the extent that we know, and we don't know very much after 80 years, but um, one of the papers we published a while back was looking at the similarities between the effects of ECT on the brain and the effects of a mild brain trauma. You know, if you have a car accident or you're hit over the head or something, and there's a lot of similarities there. One of the effects of mild brain trauma uh, or close head injury is a a sort of uh, euphoria. Uh, That's why I use the word buzz, which some psychiatrists mistake for some sort of cure. Um, but it isn't. It's the, it's the effects of um, uh, stressing the brain or traumatizing the brain. Um, but that, so they see that and they think it works, and they and they feel like they they've helped. The other factor we have to talk about is a very very powerful placebo effects going on with ECT. That the, the more invasive and more extensive a procedure, the greater the placebo effect. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with placebo effects. As, as psychologists, about half of what we do is placebo effect in terms of building up hope and expectations that things are going to get better. And here you are, you might be a bit desperate, you might have tried other things, and here's someone who you trust, putting you through quite an extensive procedure, eight to ten times with a general anesthetic, people in white coats, nurses, anesthesiologists, and you feel that somebody's trying really hard to to help you and to do something really quite, um, What's the right word? Intrusive is a negative. Quite extensive, we'll call it, call it that. It's a big procedure, 10 times. You're going to believe that that's going to work, and you wake up feeling a bit different, a bit, a bit muzzy, a bit muzzy, a bit confused temporarily, and you feel, well, that's had an effect, and you feel you feel better. Um, all of those, 10 of the 11 placebo-controlled studies I referred to earlier, um, the placebo group uh, improved quite a lot. Um, and the placebo group, I should just explain, in this circumstance, it's not like an empty capsule. A placebo group for an ECT study is where you give the general anaesthetic, but you withhold the electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you compare those two groups, there's, there's very little difference. So, and, and that would be fine if it wasn't for all the memory loss and brain damage. Sure. Yeah. Now, you know, something else that has been um, presented to be less invasive than ECT, although, you know, my limited understanding of the history of ECT is that it's less invasive, you know, because of the use of of, of um, anesthetic now than it used to be maybe 80 years ago, whether or not that's true. But um, something else that's become very popular as less invasive is TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. What can you say about that? Is that less invasive? Is it more effective? Uh, is there promise there? Uh, just quickly before we move on to that, I just need to uh, yeah. do it briefly. We need to acknowledge that the research says on ECT that between 12 and 55% of people will end up with permanent or persistent memory loss, and that's defined mm-hmm. by lasting six months or more. It's important to, to say that because people are told that there might be a bit of memory loss, it's temporary, it all comes back. Um, that's true for some people, but it's not true for a significant number of people who end up with permanent memory loss of the kind where you, you can't remember things like your 
your wedding, perhaps, or the birth of a child. Or, these are major effects. These are not just minor sort of um, adverse effects. So I just needed to, to say that. But that has to go into the mix when deciding whether this treatment should still be used. Um, on the other treatments, um, is it less or more invasive? Uh, I would say they're less, less invasive. Um, but certainly um, using less electricity. Um, uh, so there's less uh, adverse effects. So probably slightly, it's probably safer. Um, my worry about these other types of treatment is, is that they, um, as we were saying before, they can't address the actual causes of the pe- of the problems that people have. You can't mm-hmm. fix loneliness, sadness, poverty, the effects of war trauma, rape, or, or all of the things that we know cause extreme distress and depression. You can't fix those with electricity. Or, and in a way, if you could, that would bother me in another in another way. Because as I say, it's not difficult to artificially affect. The mood you you can do it with. I mean, people do it every weekend with 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 street drugs. Um, so it's a bit 1984ish from from me to think that whenever we get a bit depressed, we just need to buzz a bit of electricity through our brains and and get ourselves going again. Um, I, I think our mental health services should be a little more sophisticated than that and should be uh, training people more how to connect to people in extreme distress and, and how to talk things through with them and teach them new skills and all of the, all of those things. So mm. those other ones you're mentioning are, are certainly safer than ECT. I mean, ECT is a very dangerous procedure. Putting 150 volts of electricity through the brain is not a good idea. Mm. Um, these other ones are safer, but I'm worrying for other reasons. Now, you, you called for an independent review in the UK of ECT, just to go back to that again briefly. And was that the, the kind of the crux of that review? Was that it, uh, efficacy is, is limited uh, and there are such great dangers? That, that's the, the crux of it. But we have an additional problem, which I'm sure you do have, you have as well, but I don't think anybody's tracked it in the States. In Britain, nobody is regulating or monitoring ECT. Um, so there is nowhere for people to take any complaints or concerns too. Um, I won't bore you with all the details, but we have three regulatory bodies here um, and they all say it's somebody else's job to monitor ECTs, not, it's not ours. Or they say, oh, well, we have to trust the psychiatrist. So every other every other aspect of our mental health services is fairly properly monitored and regulated, but ECT isn't. So that's the other part of our concern. Yes, safety, yes, efficacy, but the complete absence of any, any monitoring. And that's why we want to, we're calling for an independent inquiry into how ECT is monitored. We're not even, um, this is true across the world, so the, when we do monitor for the adverse effects, um, often often there's no monitoring for the adverse effects, um, but when they do use the test, they're using the wrong tests. They're using tests that um, are dementia tests that are very crude and will not pick up the sort of brain damage that ECT causes. So, so nowhere in the world are psychiatrists actually tracking the the brain damage or memory loss as it develops over the 10 treatments so that they could stop in time if it if it starts developing um so yeah so it's a long-winded way of saying yes safety yes efforts but also the, the regulation aspects to it 
all incredibly vital information, I think, not only for um, psychiatrists, psychologists, and healthcare providers, but also for informed consumers of mental health care. So thank you so much, Professor John Reed, for sharing all this uh, great information with us, helpful, I think, useful information, both for patients and professionals on Modern Minds. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to be right back right after this. Mark, thank you. I'm joined now by Dr. Joseph Treadle. He's a neuropsychiatrist with Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, and we're going to continue the conversation talking about electroconvulsive shock therapy, ECT for short. So how does this therapy work? Sure, Brian. So ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, is uh, a medical treatment for various forms of severe psychiatric disease. Mm -hmm. uh, it entails applying brief pulses of electricity to patients to the scalp of patients who are both anesthetized mm -hmm. and with a muscle relaxant. Uh, it induces a short seizure in their brain that's self-limited uh, and doing these several at a time lead to improvement in symptoms of certain diseases. I mean, we want to be clear too, they're, they're under anesthesia. So it's sort of a controlled seizure that they're having. That's correct. So the only way we know there's a seizure is because we use an electroencephalogram so we can see it on the monitor. Okay. So who can benefit from ECT and what types of conditions specifically does it treat? So in general, it treats patients that have relatively severe forms of uh, depression, bipolar disorder, and some types of psychoses. Um, we tend to use it the most for patients who have not responded well to standard medication treatment or they can't tolerate the effects of medications. Uh, and also for those who need a very rapid response. So someone who perhaps is not eating or drinking or they're acutely suicidal. So these are really for severe cases where someone's quality of life is being impacted and we would then turn to this form of treatment. Absolutely. And does it, someone have to be referred to it or can they self-refer? How does that work? Yeah, so we require the patients are referred by a psychiatrist. Okay, good to know there. So how often does the treatment need to happen in order for it to be effective? So when patients start their treatment, they have three treatments per week on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm -hmm. Most patients receive between six and 12 treatments. I would say the average is probably seven. Um, once they've had that index course of treatments, we assess how they're doing. And at times we will taper the treatments down to perhaps once a week or once a month. Other times we may just discontinue treatment. Okay, so it can be kind of a, an ongoing thing until you see where the patient is Correct. based on the results that they're seeing. So after treatment, what types of improvements can someone expect? So the, the most common and the quickest improvements that we see tend to be in more of the, what we refer to as vegetative functions. Mm -hmm. And so sleep, appetite, energy levels, uh, overall activity, or just engagement with the outside world. And do you, those happen sort of instantaneous or is it kind of gradual after the treatment? It is a gradual, gradual response. ECT essentially uh, has cumulative benefit. And so we don't expect to see anything for the first few treatments. So if someone, you know, is worried about the, the safety of this, what would you say to them? Because I understand the, the way that you guys go about it has changed over the decades and it's certainly become safer than what people may have heard about in the past. So what would you say to someone who, who has their doubts or is skeptical? So overall, current ECT is remarkably safe. In fact, a lot of people would, uh, would actually argue that it's safer than many of the medications that we use. Um, it has come a long way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the safety is due to two factors. One is that we now do it under anesthesia and with a muscle relaxant, but we also use different electrical stimuli. So they're much, much lower in intensity than what we're used in the past. There are some common side effects that patients have during ECT. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the one thing we worry about the most uh, is long-term memory loss, which happens in about 20% of patients. Okay, so it's something to obviously consider. Are there any other side effects from this treatment? 
So the, the more common ones include uh, some general body aches from the medicines that are used, uh, a headache, maybe nausea, and then fogginess. Uh, 100% of patients that have UCT during their treatment course will feel foggy and they'll have some difficulty with short-term memory, but for the majority of those, those issues will self, they'll fix themselves within the They'll first resolve over time. Now, once someone has this treatment, is it sort of a one and done or could they need sort of another treatment at some point down the road? Yeah, so it, it's really a mixed, it's a mixed population. You know, we have patients that have one treatment course and they're good for a very long time. We have others that uh, have a treatment course, but then we have to slowly taper treatments and they come back once a month. Um, we have patients that have been coming for years, right. you know, once once a month or once every two months because that keeps them out of the hospital and keeps their quality of life high. But the underlying message here is this treatment, obviously, you're seeing, you know, impacts to quality of life, improvements, and it, it does work for people. It works very well. All right. A lot of great information about a topic that a lot of people may not know about, and now they do. So, Dr. Joseph Treadle, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Of course, thank you for watching. With that said, Mark, we'll send it back to you. Thank you so much for joining us this month on Modern Minds. I hope that you found this episode to be insightful, challenging, and most of all, helpful in informing your own understanding of this sometimes controversial intervention. I also hope that you come back and check out some of our other conversations that we've had so far. We've talked about de-prescribing, back to school, recovery, architecture, and teen mental health with more episodes to come. Each and every episode is available in both audio and video on Spotify and YouTube, so follow the show on either of those to get notified as soon as the next one is up. We also have audio-only versions of every episode on all of the usual podcast platforms like Apple, Google, Amazon, Audible, iHeartRadio, and more. If you have ideas for future topics or guests, get in touch with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, and YouTube at Mark Hennick, or on my website, M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K.com. I look forward to talking with you again next time. So until then, I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been Modern Minds.